Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Alina Martin. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. We're reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. And in this episode, we'll be speaking to Kirsty Marins on the thorny issue of charity's use of social media, following the Charity Commission's recent consultation on draft social media guidance for charities and trustees. And of course, the storm caused by Gary Lineker's tweets on his views on the government's response to illegal cross-channel migrant crossings. But first, it's been an interesting time for the sector following the budget announcement last week in which Chancellor Jeremy Hunt promised £100 million to help charities. Yes. Our resident budget boffin... Russell Hargrave, was busy looking at the implications and so busy, in fact, that he needed to retreat to the beaches of southern Spain this week to recuperate. Yeah, lucky him. You can read Russ's analysis across several articles on the Third Sector website, but perhaps we can just talk about a couple of the most interesting points or relevant points of the budget for charities. So out of this £100 million funding, 25% is intended to be used to help charities make their buildings more energy efficient. Yes. And the reaction overall has been interesting. Obviously, the sector is very welcoming of the news that they're getting £100 million, something that has never happened before in a government budget. But at the same time, people have expressed concerns over how far this money can actually stretch. Mm. And we've also seen from some charities a frustration that the Treasury has chosen not to back cause-specific projects, which some felt that could have been financially viable. There's one example, for instance, Marie Curie said that offering targeted support for families of people with terminal illnesses could have been affordable, quote-unquote, but that the Chancellor chose not to deliver it. Yeah, there was also the observation made that this £100 million in context, it's actually the equivalent of about four months of money from the National Lottery Community Fund. But then there are other elements of the budget which are expected to benefit charities, not least among them the childcare support given that a lot of childcare services are provided by charities and voluntary organisations. Yes, and I think it was Pro Bono Economics who commented that the expanded £11 million scheme to support Ukrainian refugees to find jobs in the UK would also benefit charities since they are among the main organisations who are supporting this community. So, yeah, overall good news. We'll see how it pans out. Moving on to our main feature this week, we will be talking about the risks that communicating on social media present to charities. To guide us through the issues, we are joined by Kirsty Marins, a digital communication specialist who has worked with a range of charities. She's also the trustee of Charity Comms and chaired a joint event with NCVO last week to talk about the Charity Commission's draft guidance. Hello, Kirsty. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being here. So we've heard from the Charity Commission that they received 396 responses to its consultation on social media guidance, although it wouldn't specify how this compares to other consultations. Why do you think that this guidance has sparked such a reaction? I think the timing of it, for one thing, 
social media has been around for almost 20 years now and it's interesting that we're only now being given some guidance on how to use it. I think also the fact that it's come about just before a general election is really interesting. And as one of my peers said, it seems to be a bit like double standards. Why have charities been given guidance on how to use social media, but the corporate sector and businesses haven't? So I think all of these have sparked quite a reaction from the sector. Mm, I mean, in terms of the why now question, the, the commission did send us a statement and They reported an increase in complaints about the social media activity of charities and a knowledge gap among trustees regarding social media use and its risks. It is this that prompted the Commission to now develop draft guidance. What do you think of that? I can see why they've drafted the guidance in lieu of the complaints against charities, but I think we need to look at what those complaints are. To my knowledge... I think they're often against charities that their purpose is controversial to the public. So refugee charities or charities that are for transgender rights, etc. So how valid are those complaints? Is it just that the public doesn't agree with what that charity's mission is? Or is it really about the way that they're using social media? Because I think those are two different areas to look into really. And you raise a good point. I mean, since the nature of social media also involves this amount of online outrage and trolling and sort of onslaught against charities whenever they take a stance on anything, it is hard to determine when uh, investigating something it's worth the trustee's time. So that is one impractical aspect that the guidance could possibly have. Could you highlight any other types of impracticalities in the guidance? Sure. I mean, I think for me, there are three parts of the guidance that really stand out as being quite impractical. So the first is that the guidance states that charities should ensure that they use social media only to help achieve their charity's purpose. But that's, it's not really clear what that actually means. Does that mean that charities can only talk about their charitable objects? Because that's not really how charities use social media. And I don't really think it's what our supporters, our beneficiaries, our donors, etc. are looking for when they engage with us on social media. I think the second is that they say trustees need to have oversight and be responsible for staff and volunteers using their personal accounts, whether explicitly linked to the charity or not, to share content which doesn't necessarily reflect the view of the charity. Um, That is highly problematic and impractical. So, for example, charities that have thousands of staff and volunteers, how would, you know, 15 trustees be able to monitor those accounts and have oversight? And secondly, should they? What about employees' right to freedom of speech? It sounds like we're being asked to police the accounts, the personal accounts of staff and volunteers. So there's a question around that, the ethics of that. And then the last is actually that whole um, aspect of what is problematic content 
So the guidance states that those who are employed by or working with charities are free to use social media in their own right. However, sometimes there are risks that an individual's posts are interpreted as reflecting the views of the charity. And the draft guidance therefore says that trustees should consider setting out what their rules are and how they would respond if such activity brings negative attention to the charity. The thing is, though, we're not defined as people by who we work for. Of course, we would hope that charity staff and volunteers share the values of the charity that they're employed by, but we also have our own values, and we also have things that we stand for as individuals. And currently in the UK, there are a lot of people who seem to have absolutely no empathy for refugees, for example, they don't want them in this country, or there are lots of people who are transphobic. So does that mean that because those are controversial topics, which again, the guidance has a section on controversial topics, that we need to censor our own support for other charities working in that space or censor our own views on those topics for fear that we maybe upset a donor or a supporter who doesn't share our view and then conflates our view with the charity that we work for. So where do you draw the line on that? And I think that's the point that caused so much interest in the Gary Lineker BBC story. Mm. Where does his view conflate with the BBC's? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it links into wider issues surrounding campaigning as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. You've mentioned the refugee situation, you've mentioned trans rights. Could you perhaps give us insight into a couple of charities who have recently made a social media splash perhaps in those areas? Well, since we spoke last week when you invited me to come on to the podcast, we've just seen what's happened with Oxfam. So Oxfam uh, recently updated their Inclusive Language Guide, which is an internal document, and they did tweet it, and that caused a social media storm. The Daily Mail called it Beyond Parody, and lots of people were quick to tweet that the charity was wasting money. They questioned how much money had been spent because it's, I think, like a 90-page document. They accused the charity of erasing women. They also said that the charity was ashamed of its heritage. And, of course, there was the usual, I'm not going to donate to you anymore. I've been a regular supporter and I'm withdrawing that support because of this guide. And that trended on Twitter at the end of last week. And actually, speaking to The Guardian the CEO of Oxfam, he had this quote, which I thought was really interesting. And it's talking about the importance of decolonizing aid or about trans inclusion may not feel popular for now at least, but it will help us to transform the development sector into something more fit for purpose in the 21st century. And I feel like this is a charity that's really living its values and not apologizing for it. And Apparently, according to the article, that tweet reached 5 million people. Wow. They did um, turn off comments, so people couldn't comment directly. 
And then they were accused of, well, how can you be inclusive if you won't let us reply to this tweet? But I think it's really interesting how, you know, for the charities that are not afraid to stand up for what they believe is right, they will face this kind of backlash. They probably are going to have some complaints. No doubt someone's already been in touch with the Charity Commission to complain. There were lots of people saying things like, you know, poor people don't care if you call them him or her or they or them, you know, and missing the complete point of the guide. I think what I will say, though, is what is interesting in the draft guidance is there was there was a mention, but it was very small, about the well-being of, um, you know, the people who actually have to deal with social media for a charity. And I think that that is something that really needs a lot more guidance or thought around, because at the end of the day, the people who are managing that account, that Oxfam account, they are on the front line of all the abusive messages, the abusive tweets, and not even in times of crisis, just as we've been talking about, you know, charities that are not popular, for want of a better word, you know, refugee charities, LGBTQ plus charities, you know, they are going to be facing horrible messages or tweets every day. So I really do want charities and trustees in particular to really consider their well-being and their duty of care to these staff members and to really have, you know, adequate things in place for them to manage their mental health and their well-being. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned this aspect in the guidance for the protection of charity employees and volunteers, um, because the Charity Commission has highlighted that the guidance is not meant to prevent the use of personal social media, but it wanted to raise awareness for the opportunities as well as risks that social media presents. And I wonder if you had any opinion on this, why the reaction has mainly focused on the negative. Is it that the guidance wasn't properly communicated? Or like you say, there are bits that should be developed further? I'm not going to say I think the guidance is a completely negative thing. I don't. I do think it is helpful. I think it will help charities and trustees to consider if they don't have a policy, whether they should have one, you know, what do they stand for as a charity? What are their values? What are the things that they are willing to be bold about? So I think there are definitely some positives. I do think it needs a lot more work. And hopefully the fact that there have been almost 400 responses will help them to shape it into a more useful and practical guidance. One of the things that we talked about in the Charity Comms and the NCBO Roundtable was the fact that there weren't really any examples or templates that charities could use. So, you know, there was reference to things like a social media policy, but there wasn't a link to where to find a template, for example, or, you know, what makes a good social media policy or what are the questions you should consider? Or again, the well-being question, well, what does that look like? What should we be putting in place for our staff and our volunteers? So I think, you know, some of the guidance was a very light touch and top line and needs a bit more work, I would say, to make it really 
useful and practical. Well, you are a social media digital communications expert. Uh, what would your advice be for charities who are evaluating their social media activity and perhaps thinking about reviewing their policies? So I think some of the practical things that charities can do right now is one is to actually read the draft guidance if they haven't already. I do wonder how many charities even know about it. Um, so first of all, read the draft guidance. It may be too late to submit a response, but I do think it's really important to read what it says. I think secondly, you know, read other people's views on it to maybe cement your own views or to get you to think about things you may not have considered. For example, it only was brought to my attention recently that it doesn't really include anything about accessibility, which I should have considered when I read it and I didn't. So I think it's really important to see what other people are saying. So lots of people have written blog posts on it. For example, Zoe Amar has written some. I've posted on LinkedIn a summary of the NCBO and the Charity Commons Roundtable, some of the key points that we discussed. If you are a member of NCBO, you can ask them for that summary. They did email it around. The Chartered Institute of Fundraising has also published their summary of their response. Akivo, if you are a member, they have also published their response. So there are lots of places that you can find what other people in the sector think about the guidance. Then I would say get the right people together at your charity to have a discussion about the guidance and what it specifically means for your charity. I think what's important about the guidance is it's not a one size fits all. It will, you know, it needs to be tailored to your charity. If you have a social media policy, revisit it. Decide if it is fit for purpose, if it needs updating. If you don't have a social media policy, potentially consider creating one. I think having a social media policy is a good thing. It doesn't matter what size your charity is. It is a good thing to have. And there are lots of templates that you can use. So Charity Comms has one, for example, on their website that is free to download. Media Trust has one as well, um, Heritage Digital. So you can find templates to download and adapt. And I think actually the best advice that I've heard over the years, and I can't attribute it to anybody because so many people have said it, I don't know the original source, but it's really just very basic. You know, don't post anything on social media that you wouldn't be happy to see published in a newspaper. If you follow that guidance, you can't really go wrong. And if it is something that's published in a newspaper, then you have to back it up and you have to have you know, the courage to stand by what you said. So I think that's really the best advice is, you know, every time you tweet, whether you post on any social media platform, as a charity or as an individual representing your charity, just think about, would I be okay with this being quoted in the Daily Mail, in the Guardian, on third sector? So, you know, that's kind of advice to live by, really, when it comes to social media. Yeah, and that's great advice. I think particularly with a specific generation of people coming into adulthood now who grew up with social media might think of it as a toy, but really it's there forever. Absolutely. 
I mean, even if you delete something, someone has probably screen grabbed it or, you know, it's still searchable on the internet. So it doesn't really disappear. Yeah. It's very difficult, though, isn't it, this distinction between institutional organisational accounts and the accounts of the people who work for those charities. Like you said earlier, trustees shouldn't be policing what staff and volunteers of charities are doing. It simply wouldn't be possible if you have a massive organisation which has got tens of thousands of employees and volunteers. Who's going to be doing that? And do you think there's a risk that trustees might be put off taking up these kinds of positions because of onerous policing, for want of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be quite honest, I think a lot of trustees and charities are quite risk-averse anyway. And I think, you know, that recent report about campaigning is also saying that charities are censoring themselves when it comes to campaign. So we're becoming even more risk-averse. And I think the fear of this draft guidance is that it's going to make us even more risk averse than we already are. And yes, I do think it could put off some people becoming trustees because although it's not saying it's a legal responsibility, it does feel a bit like it is in the same way that we have a legal responsibility to our charity in terms of our financial accounts and that sort of thing. It does feel like it's bordering on that, Mm. although they say that it isn't. It is how it comes across. And I think that would put people off becoming a trustee, definitely. Yeah, although it is guidance, it's not regulation. Presumably, if they were getting a whole load of complaints about a particular charity that perhaps wasn't conforming or following that guidance, there would be problems for that charity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a good point. It is guidance, but at what point would it become almost enforced? Yeah, it's a tricky issue. I mean, the Charity Commission has issued a statement saying that our proposed guidance intends to raise awareness of the opportunities and risks associated with social media use and to help trustees to manage these The proposals make clear that those employed by or working with charities are free to use social media in their own right and also reiterates how it is very tricky territory and personal and professional lives and opinions can overlap and that's why they are consulting on this following clearly the need that they identified to give more guidance. As a closing remark, I wonder if a trustee overlooking an employee or a volunteer's social media, personal social media accounts, if it becomes a thing that happens regularly, is it going to be a retroactive thing as well? Like, it seems like there must be more clarity around where the line is as well. When does an employee or a volunteer begin to represent the charity in that way? It is a really tricky one in terms of, so for example, myself, I am freelance, but of course I work with lots of charities. And at the moment I've been working with the charity for over a year on a fairly regular basis. Of course, I don't put anywhere in my Twitter profile, for example, that I am working with this charity, but I do engage with their tweets. Yeah. So at what point would somebody connect the dots? Yeah. If you see what I mean. And Lots of people seem to think that if you say in your Twitter bio, 
tweets my own thoughts, not my employees, that that gets you around that situation. But I remember a few years ago, a lawyer saying that actually tweeting something hateful, like a hate crime, that is still a crime. It doesn't exonerate you from anything. And of course, that would be in your code of conduct policy. Of course, you can't have anything that would be abusive or hateful or harmful. And those are clearly defined. But I think there is that thought that if you say, you know, these thoughts are my own, that that makes it okay. And I guess that's where the gray line is. Like, does it or doesn't it? Because even if you don't identify where you work, you are probably engaging in your organization's own social media. And it may be that you have put on a different social media platform, LinkedIn, for example, where you work, because that's what that platform is. So it can be very easy for people to connect the dots even if you don't explicitly say where you work, you know, where do you draw the line then? If you haven't explicitly said on Twitter, for example, where you work, but you have on a different social media platform such as LinkedIn, does that mean you can never tweet anything that may put your charity in disrepute? You know, if you are someone who thinks that trans rights are human rights, but lots of people disagree with you and then conflate that with being your charity's view you know where where do you draw the line yeah it's a minefield it is and I'm not sure we will get an answer to be quite honest even the charity commission said itself it's a very tricky area and I don't think there is a black and white answer to this question no well hopefully this discussion has made things a little bit clearer or at least provoked some thoughts. Kirsty Marins, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed our chat with Kirsty. And just before we close, we'd like to draw your attention to another podcast covering the not-for-profit sector. It's called Rethinking Humanitarianism. And joining us to tell us about it is Isabel Rugol from The New Humanitarian, which is the publication behind the podcast. Hi, Isabel. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for popping in. So just in a nutshell, please tell us about The New Humanitarian and your podcast. The New Humanitarian is a nonprofit newsroom dedicated to covering the humanitarian aid sector. And our podcast, Rethinking Humanitarianism, is really exploring the future of aid and how we can rethink the way that aid is delivered um, and improve it. Mm. And could you tell us about one of the issues that you've been covering recently on the podcast? Yeah, so a big one for us is decolonizing aid. The whole process of aid can be fairer, more inclusive and more effective. We had a wonderful conversation with Deegan Ali, who's a very thoughtful and thought-provoking speaker on this topic and several other conversations around decolonization, around better, fairer trade and fairer aid. Mm. Sounds fascinating. And how can listeners find Rethinking Humanitarianism? Well, just search for The New Humanitarian wherever you're listening to this podcast or any other podcast, or you can go to thenewhumanitarian.org slash podcast. Excellent. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and please listen. That's it for this week. 
you can read the transcripts to this episode and many of our other recent episodes on the Third Sector website under podcasts. And if you have ideas about topics and areas that we should be covering in future episodes, please do get in touch. We have a link to a survey in the show notes, which won't take you very long and we would very much welcome your views. Before we go, we also wanted to tell you about the Third Sector C-Suite Summit for Leaders of Charities of All Sizes, which is taking place on the 4th of April in central London. Speakers will include Jane Ide from Akivo and Paul Amadi from the British Red Cross. It's free to attend, but you do need to register either at thirdsectorsummit.com or via the Third Sector website. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Alina Martin. Thank you to our guest, Kirsty Marins, and our producer, Nav Powell. Join us again next week.